So this lady uh, knocks on the door of this guy's house. And she says, he opens up and she says to him, uh, sir, do you, uh, do you happen to own a black pit bull? And the guy goes, yeah, I do. Why? And she says, well, I'm very sorry to tell you, but he died. And the man says, he died? What are you, what are you talking about? What do you, what do you mean? How did he die? What happened? And she said, well, my miniature poodle killed it. What? This guy says, uh, how did your poodle kill my pit bull? She said, well, it got stuck in his throat. Oh, my God. Does the microphone work? Hello? Come on. That wasn't that bad. Should I just leave? That was terrible. Did not one person laugh? You know, it got stuck in his throat. Forget it. Forget it. You know, so <laughs> I'm sorry. Sometimes, um, sometimes the little things or the little ones surprise us. Sometimes that which seems kind of objectively small and probably weak, insignificant, a lot of times we're we're surprised. Those small ones, those small things, I think more often than we th suspect, ultimately become big things. Um, sometimes the smallest have the biggest impact. Uh, there's this camp in Connecticut. Uh, some of you sure have heard about it. It's uh, it's a camp for kids, for kids with uh, cancer and other very serious illnesses. It's called the, uh, the Hole in the Wall Gang. Paul Newman, uh, the actor, uh, he, he's the f he founded it about 35 years ago. And it's kind of an interesting place. Uh, it's got a great reputation. It's, it's really just like an escape. What he wanted to do, Newman, was create this experience for kids who were suffering and for the families, but the kids primarily, just to, to give them a week to just, as much as possible, escape their circumstances. So they just created this very fun, like, playground um, for these kids and equipped with all the medical uh, aspects that would be needed for, for kids with particular needs. So the whole medical staff connected to it. But the way this camp began is kind of interesting. Um, it was 1980, right before Christmas. Paul Newman, who also lives in Connecticut, he was uh, preparing Christmas presents for his neighbors. He made this, uh, he had this homemade salad dressing. I mean, you see it in the store, Newman's own. Well, before it was in the stores, he was just kind of making it at home. And, uh, he had a whole a big giant vat of it out in his garage, olive oil, vinegar, spices, and a whole bunch of empty wine bottles. So what he did was he, uh, well, he, he made this salad dressing, put them in these wine bottles, and he gave them to his neighbors as a Christmas present. And they loved it. They, they were raving about this salad dressing. So they said, you got to make more. And he did. 
And then they said, you gotta, you ought to sell this stuff. This is as how how good this salad dressing is. So he did. I mean, he, he thought the whole thing was a joke. He really wasn't looking to make any money. And then he said, well, no, maybe I will try to make money, and I'll and I'll make money for for great causes. He wasn't looking to pocket any of it. So he invested twenty thousand dollars, and his neighbor twenty thousand dollars, and they put that into this business, and it took off. Uh, they started selling selling it in local stores in Connecticut, and within uh, two years, they had three hundred thousand dollars, hundred percent of it going to charity, and he had a whole bunch of charities laid out, earmarked, and then this idea of this camp came about, and that really became kind of the focus where I guess I guess most of the money went to. Now they serve uh, 20,000 kids a year in these camps, and since the early 80s, when this began, they've raised uh, $450 million dollars from this, you know, and he expanded it. He had lemonade and popcorn and all these other other stuff, you know, food products. Twenty-eight camps. So the thing just totally took off. If you go to their website, you can check out some of the kind of the testimonials, mostly from family, from parents of these kids. Some of them, some from the kids themselves, and they just talk about the power of this camp. And the impact and the influence it's had on the lives of these people, people getting choked up as they're they're talking about it, just sort of life changing, maybe even like life saving experiences as a result of this camp. And it began with homemade salad dressing in his garage. It's kind of this small thing becoming really big idea that's what I was trying to say about the joke with the little dog and the no all right I'm just gonna put that to rest there's a uh, remember reading this uh, story about uh, you know make a wish foundation do such great work and uh, there was this guy who uh, was dying. He had, he, had, he had cancer. He was dying, and uh, he had this. One of his bucket list items was uh, to go to a Notre Dame football game. Always wanted to get there, and he just never did. And now, practically, he didn't really have the finances to get himself there. And well, anyway, I guess friends reached out to make a wish, and they made it happen. So he got to this game, Notre Dame game, before he before he ultimately did die. But one of his friends was just talking about the Notre Dame football experience, and they just said it's like, it really is something you should do before you die. Um, the football piece is kind of secondary. I mean, that's, if you're into that, that's great, but you don't even have to really care about the game so much. It's just the, the spirit and the tradition and the, the sense of community that is just kind of unbelievable in that stadium for those few hours on those Sundays. Um, You know, 180 years ago, eight priests and brothers, religious brothers, eight of them, from uh, France and from Ireland, went out to South Bend 
they had been given access to 500 acres of property and they were told, go build a school. Their first class was two students and it was a grade school. And now it's Notre Dame. You know, God, I think, begins small. Often. I mean, not always, but often. God often begins, I think, below the radar, sort of almost off the grid. Like, you'd miss it. You'd miss God if you weren't really on the lookout. Because very often God just shows up, I think, in kind of small, ordinary humble ways but eventually they become huge they become life-changing and life-saving kind of like that camp i mean it's this gospel it's this parable he says the the kingdom of god is like this god god is like this and you know we we know this we know the image it's a mustard seed this tiny like you almost Talk about walking by it and missing it if you weren't looking for it. Totally. You wouldn't, you wouldn't recognize it at all. It's so tiny. And the seed becomes huge. It becomes something that you can't possibly miss. Man, but it begins real small. So easy to miss. So seemingly unimportant. You know, in, uh, in England in uh, Oxford, right right by the university. There's this pub, this English pub. It's a bunch of pubs, I guess, but this is one particular one, which back in the 1930s, uh, this group of uh, professors used to hang out at. On Tuesdays, they would meet up for, uh, for lunch, a couple of drinks and for lunch, and they would talk shop. They were uh, literary guys and they were uh, philosophers. So what they'd do is they'd come for these drinks and, and a meal and they would, they would sort of, uh, they would, they would talk to the others in the group, there's about eight or nine of them, kind of what they were writing, what they were up to. And the, Raymond, the other guys would sort of critique it and say, yeah, you know, that's good or not so good. You ought to tweak it this way, that way. One of, one of the members of this group was uh, Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien. And they say that... Um, in a lot of ways, the Lord of the Rings was kind of born in that pub, in the Hobbit. If you saw the pub, it just looks like any one of any other pub. It doesn't look special. But what happened back in the 1930s was a pretty big deal, or it became a big deal. Another member of that group was this uh, the great Protestant theologian uh, C.S. Lewis, a great writer himself. The Chronicles of Narnia and great, great theology. He was asked a question once about God and history. Sort of like, how does God show up? How does God show up in our lives? How does God enter history? And he said this very quietly. God shows up very quietly in a dusty, forgotten corner of the Roman Empire sneaking behind enemy lines. 
God's really not in your face. God's real humble. Just consider the way he was born into the world. Consider the Christmas story. That's what he was referencing. It's easy to miss. You know, we know the details of the Christmas story. We're sure we would, we would have walked by, spotted that stable or that cave or whatever it was he was born in, and we would be stopped in our tracks because somehow we would have known that this is God, this is God. I'm not so sure. It probably looked like any other stable or any other cave in Bethlehem. And that baby probably looked like any other little newborn baby boy. And same with his parents. Very humble, very easy to miss. And that's how God shows up very quietly. So I think the challenge for us becomes, I mean, I better not miss him. God really isn't in our face very often. So that means I got to be more aggressive, more proactive, looking out for the presence of God. How does God show up in our lives? I was talking about this this morning down at St. Ignatius at the 945 Mass, and a woman who I know in the parish, she came up to me. She's uh, retired, as is her husband. Uh, he was there, but he, 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 I saw him for a minute, and then he kind of kept going, but she stayed and she told me this story. She said, uh, I guess this was probably also about 40 years ago. Father Chuck Romano, he was a priest down at Ignatius. He was a brand new priest, newly ordained. And he came up to this couple and he said to them, I, would you, I, I'd like you to consider becoming Eucharistic ministers for the parish. And uh, she immediately said, she like looked at her husband and said, there's no way he's becoming a Eucharistic minister. Because he said, shines every Saturday night way too late. There's no way this guy should be distributing the Blessed Sacrament. She said he, he would see, you'd smell the beer on him the next morning as he was giving out communion. So he, she was like, she answered the question. She didn't even let the, the guy speak. She's like, no, he's not doing this. And then she said to me that two weeks later, he quit drinking. And she said he has not had a drink since that moment. And he became a Eucharistic minister. And he still is. Man, that invitation, that one little invite from that priest, that one suggestion, look how, look how like, I don't know, I suspect in a big way, his life was turned around based on her description of what life was like, the way he was living, not, probably wasn't gonna end too well, but it ended very well. I mean, it's not over yet, but was it as simple, was that the mustard seed, this priest just saying, I think you should think about doing this. I think that's more often how God does work. Those people who show up in our lives, and they'll say something to you. They're like, you know what? you. I think you should apply for that job. And you were thinking about it, but you weren't going to do it because you didn't really have the confidence. Maybe even somebody else discouraged the notion. So you kind of got rattled and you just sort of stepped away from the possibility until this person said, I think you could do this. So you did it. And you got the job. And I don't know, that then sent you to a different building 
and you met somebody in that building that you fell in love with and became your husband or your wife. And now you got kids that wouldn't even be had you not met. And you never would have met had you not gone for the job. So you can kind of trace it back to that person saying, hey, go for this. I think you could do this. I don't know, was God just working through that person? Is it this mustard seed thing? I mean, objectively, okay, it's just a, it's a sentence. I think you should apply for the job. And this little mustard seed turns into the whole arc of my life changed. Person I never knew existed became the love of my life. What if that person hadn't asked the question? I don't know, so maybe the challenge for us is well, to, to do two things. To recognize the mustard seeds and to be the mustard seeds. God begins small. So find him in the small. <laughs>